You're listening to Profiles in France Formation, the podcast where we hear from inspiring people who have pursued their dream of moving to France. We learn about why they moved, how they overcame the challenges they faced, and what they love and hate about living in France. I hope that hearing their stories can help you to pursue your dreams and maybe your very own France Formation. I'm your host, Alison Grant-Luness, and I'm here to tell you, my guests followed their dreams and you can follow yours too. It starts today. Welcome to episode 62 of Profiles in Transformation. I'm your host, Alison Grantliness, and this week my guest is Marta Hobbs, author of Unraveling, a memoir about her spiritual healing journey. Marta has been an immigrant twice in very different circumstances. The first time, she was a young girl fleeing communist Poland in a cloak and dagger operation, and she arrived in the unwelcoming city of New York, not speaking a word of English, to compound the trauma of escaping by abandoning herself and her identity to fit in and become American. The second time, after creating outward business and family success, she moved to Paris by choice. And once she arrived with financial security and distance and space, everything started to unravel. I am delighted that Marta was willing to share her story of healing, and I encourage you to read her book. Welcome, Marta. Thanks for joining me today. I'm very excited to talk about your book, Unraveling. Thank you so much for having me. So your book is starts with you've moved to Paris and everything for you kind of starts to unravel and you bring us back to your experience first of moving to the U.S., moving to New York at the age of 12, 13. So tell me a little bit about your experience of moving to the U.S. as a young girl and how was that different? from your experience of making the choice to move to Paris? So I was very aware at the time we moved to Paris, we, I was married, I had two children, and my daughter was exactly the age I was when I immigrated to the United States. So she was 12, 13, and my son was five years younger. And I was very much aware that I was at the threshold of getting to do a move to a foreign country and getting to do it completely differently. So my move from Poland was extremely traumatic. There's circumstances under which we left where, you know, there was a lot of civil unrest. Communism was unofficially in control of the country and of the government. And so basically my family and I fled without telling our relatives, without telling the my friends at school that we were leaving. There was a whole cover of, you know, we're going to Italy for the summer for vacation. And so we sort of said, see you in September, packed a few belongings and drove across the border with a lot of fear. So not knowing if we'd be allowed to exit, not knowing if once we did exit, if we would ever be able to return. And so there's a lot of fear and there was definitely a sense of running away. And so, and then arriving in the United States was also traumatic. And there was a a few months in between in in a German refugee camp, which was difficult. But the arrival in the United States was quite challenging too. I did not speak English. I was completely unfamiliar with the culture. You know, this was in the 80s. And so I, you know, I had like seen Little House on the Prairie or so. I was my reference of America, you know, maybe a couple of postcards of, of Times Square. And so it was, I was very much alone and I was very much lost and just missing home, you know, and, and not having a sense of reference of who I was in the world at the time. So when we moved to France, it wasn't a move that we had 
to make. We came to Paris for the summer. We had been coming for a few years before, you know, it's like two weeks, the year after that, three weeks, then a month. And, and we just loved it. We had this love affair with Paris. My husband proposed to me here. I always wanted to speak French. And we put our kids in an international school for the summer, just so they sort of would get to know the language a little bit, make some friends. And towards the end of, of that summer, we just had a family meeting and we decided to stay. The kids felt really comfortable around other children from various cultures and, and nationalities. And so when we decided, the kids agreed. We had to bribe a son a little bit, but we said, let's try it for a year and just kind of have a family experiment and, and see what happens. And so right away, what was most important for me is putting them in schools where English was the primary language. And because when I came to the States, I went to an American school with, you know, knowing like five words in the language. And it was so hard. Oh. I wanted them to be around kids who were used to coming and going. So a transient community. So they weren't like the only new kid in September. And then just knowing that I'm not running away from anything to stay in France. It's almost like a running to like what we're staying for an adventure. So there was a sense of curiosity and play versus move out of fear. Yeah. 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 And I, I mean, I remember some of the scenes in your book where you're talking about how you would be like doing homework and have your dictionary and try to translate. And of course, there wasn't Google Translate at the time. So it was very challenging and took you God knows how many times as long to do your homework and even to have a sort of a basic understanding of what was going on and not to mention all of the challenges of just figuring out life in a new place. And yeah, that it, it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, it, it was really challenging. And, you know, another complicated thing was my parents who were, you know, like the, the main two adults present in my life at the time, they also didn't speak English. They also were not familiar with the culture or the customs or, or just how things work. And so it was tough not having them to lean. And so when we moved to France and the kids were doing homework in their native tongue of English and whatever challenges they ran into here, I was able to be present for them and be like, okay, we're doing math or we're doing whatever biology and then also plugging into the international community which is such a gift of Paris you know both in their schools and also at the American Church of Paris there were so many people to go to with where do you go to the dentist how do you open up a bank account you know and when we arrived in the states it was sort of there was an organization that brought us who sponsored us the International Rescue Committee but once on the ground you know the sort of like how do you go to the grocery store and like what does milk look like and just like the basic things. We really had to that on our own as refugees in the States. And here in Paris, I just really felt supported and surrounded by people who had already gone through that experience that could guide me. And I really wanted to make it not painful for my kids, but just I wanted them to go into it with a sense of awe and adventure and sort of, you know, experiment and try something new. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's one of the things that I that I talk about quite a bit in my work is that the people that I work with are making that choice. You know, they have the resources, they have the privilege, they're not fleeing some very dangerous situation. They're not, you know, like your parents in their own difficult feelings and, you know, shock of having lost their job and having to leave their country and their home and all of that in a very, you know, difficult situation. And, you know, they're able to do it in a much more relaxed and intentional way. And I think it makes a huge difference of how people are able to create that community here in Paris. Definitely. And I think too, you know, for me coming to Paris, 
Paris was a little bit of a coming home because I always felt really connected to Europe and I always wanted to be here. So I was sort of, you know, especially that first year seeing everything through rose colored glasses because I was like, I couldn't believe that, you know, I'm putting my kids on a school bus in front of the Eiffel Tower and like, I'm finally here. I have seen a lot of expats, especially from the States, struggle in their first year. And I think the biggest difference that I see from those women in particular or trailing spouses, if the ones that struggle versus the ones who don't is if you come expecting it to be just like it is in the United States, you will be disappointed. It's a, it is a different country and a different culture, but it's scary, you know, for women who are putting their kids in new schools and they don't know how life works. I think we're so used to as mothers, you know, protecting our kids and sort of being a step ahead of them to guide them. And it becomes a traversing the unknown a little bit when you're in a foreign country, a country and a foreign, a foreign culture and a foreign language. But, you know, again, it's just seeing the beauty and the differences versus seeing that, oh, it's not like that back home. And so embracing the new and the adventure versus, you know, wanting things to be the same. I think that's shift in the mentality there can, can really make a huge difference in that. And that first year can be hard. Because yeah, it is different. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Even when there are like those, you know, that element, those elements of safety and the elements of, you know, we have the money to get the, you know, to rent the apartment that we want and our kids are in a good school and there's not, you know, you tell the story about how sometimes you would be playing with your sister and there'd be like people watching you in Poland before you left. And, you know, you don't have that here. But I mean, there are certainly other things that, that are difficult, even if you're physically and financially safe. So when you first got to Paris, what were some of the things that really made you feel like home and besides joining the international school community in the American church and what were the things that just made you really happy here and made you want to I, for me I think it's in Paris I see beauty everywhere and I've learned that sort of for me is like a I call it a sacred gateway and how I connect to sort of something deeper within me something sacred so just the simple act of you know going for a walk with the dog which I just did before we we got on the call and it's just every corner you turn there's just such beauty in architecture and how things are displayed in the stores in the simple ways the trees are cut or the flowers are displayed how people dress and so I just love that I feel like it's such a feast for the eyes regardless of the seasons you know yes it's beautiful in the spring but it's beautiful when it rains it's beautiful when it's cold I love that I really love that the pace of life here is much slower than in the states I felt like I just was running and chasing in the U.S. and you know with two kids and a career and a business and a marriage. It just was, I didn't realize it at the time, but I barely had time to breathe. You know, it was sort of just like you're an autopilot the whole time. And here I really learned to savor life, to slow it down, to notice the beauty versus, you know, filling up my calendar with appointments and then running to errands. I started to really make holes in my day to have free time and just to walk and take it in and to be instead of constantly doing. So I love that. And also for me, there was this beautiful thing in, and I think it was healing for me because in the States for so long, I had felt like an outsider, you know, even though I mastered the language and I sort of looked like every American girl and I could play that part and even having a successful business, there's still something in me that felt like I was the foreigner. And so always a little bit, I felt like the outsider and coming here, I loved being surrounded by foreign languages. I loved being surrounded by different cultures, different races and people from 
from different backgrounds. It just, you know, I, I say that like, we didn't belong here. Like we don't belong in French. We're not French. We don't belong here, but we belong to each other. And so the friendships that I made, you know, in those first few years were just on such deep levels. Like we, we just, it's sort of like, you know, this deep bond of the outsiders and the non-belongers. And so it was a really, I feel that it's a really special and tight-knit community, the people that live here, but aren't French. And we sort of, you know, gravitate to each other. We navigate the challenges of living in a foreign country together. And it's really, it was really one of the biggest gifts are the friendships that I've made here. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the interesting thing is that here, everybody is an outsider and everybody Mm -hmm. has either left something behind or come towards wanting to live in Paris. And for most of us, I think it's a little bit of both. For most Mm -hmm. of us, I think there is something that we wanted to get distance from, especially the people who are here long-term who are not, you know, on temporary job assignments and things like that. But I want to come back to what you said about the beauty of Paris, because that's something I've been thinking about a lot recently. And how all of the beauty here is man-made and intentionally organized. And I just thought when I first got here, there was something very reassuring and like healing about that because the people who dug out the foundation of Notre Dame were not alive to see the spire go on the top. And it was just very reassuring to me that there was like this long arc of people or long timeline of people creating that beauty intentionally here. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think it's why Paris attracts so many creatives. You know, you have mm-hmm. writers, you have artists here. It's in the air. And so I think it's a big, big part of the French culture. And I think it's just a big part of the just this magnetic atmosphere of the city. You know, I mean, it's whether you're walking it in the evening when the lights are sparkling or, you know, during the daytime with the sun on your face, it is all man-made because to them, it's important you know it's such a big big part of like the every and then taking the time to it's the joie de vivre right like it's there's I love that and it just there's it's almost like a different dimension to living that sort of came alive for me here you know I like I said I slow I slowed down I started walking slower I started noticing more being more present you know and I think a lot of people who come for a week-long vacation they bring their the pace that they do life at that race that chase and it's tacking off you know, like 10 things in a day and they're exhausted and they barely sleep. And so they take pictures, but they don't really savor and absorb it. And I think that is, French are just so great at that. Not only the beauty that they create, but appreciating it and savoring it and living in it. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, Paris isn't a city that has the same work rhythm as like London or New York or any of the major Anglophone cities I can think of. Like it's really about like people go out and they sit in the terrace and they take two hour lunches and they have picnics by the canals on the weekend and really take the time to enjoy life that is not just working and enjoy the beauty that is around us. Yeah. And I think for me too, it was just right at the right season in my life. You know, I think had we moved here, I don't know, five or 10 years earlier, I probably would have been, you know, like head stuck in the phone and running to appointments and on Zoom calls and stuff like that. But it just, that was another gift that I was just in that season where, you know, my career, the career that I was in at the time was coming to a close. It was like a brand new chapter. And I was fortunate enough to get to choose what the next chapter would look like for me. You know, some people come and they have to work and they're required to work on Saturdays and Sundays. You know, not everyone can be like, no, my laptop shuts down at 5 p.m. For me, I was lucky. I was able to do that. And then that made a huge shift in not just how I live my life, but really in who I became after the move. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about that because to me, it looked like, you know, in reading the book, you had built up this company with your husband 
it got sold. Like he was still involved for a little while. You had kind of sort of been squeezed out a little bit and partly had left of your own volition. But by all outside factors, like you had kind of like one being American, like you had this big company, you had the wonderful husband, you had the two children, you had the frequent vacations to the Caribbean related to that previous job. And so you got to Paris, ended up staying a year. But at that point, you weren't sure if you were going to go back. Like your family was kind of talking about, do we return home? Do we, you know, do we stay? Can we, you know, can we afford to stay? And then the company got bought out. Is that, that's, and you tell it better in the book than I just told it right here. So a little plug for people to read like your version of events. (laughs) (laughs) It's more developed. And so what was surprising to me is you arrive in Paris in this, you know, beautiful place. And all of a sudden you have free time and you have financial security from having the company sold. And that's kind of when everything starts to fall apart. Yeah. Hence the title of the book, Unraveling. It, that yeah. was the big focus sort of, yeah, you know, we were still working. And then you're right. Like we, after a year, we were like, okay, we can't because we still had our home in the United States. We can't afford to stay. And while we're trying to decide, the company sells. And so we're super excited because we can extend the, the Parisian experiment. And so the year two is when the bottom fell out for me. And I think it was because there was almost like a crack in that perfectly, you know, molded facade that I had worked so hard to build and maintain, right? Like I, as an immigrant, I had worked so hard to learn the new way of living, the American way of, you know, of being, right? And so like, it's, I call it, you know, like the formula, like you get married, you have kids, you build a house, you have a career, like I ticked all the boxes and I got there quite early. And then we moved to France and it was like, life slowed down, the company sold. So really, really slowly, that outside crack of who I thought I was, right? Which was this woman with, yeah, a family and a career and success and so busy and just so busy that when the job went away, the company got sold. The kids got a little bit older and in Paris, they're a lot more independent. You know, I wasn't driving them in the minivan to, to play dates. They were on the bus, they were on the metro, they were staying after school. All of a sudden, there were holes in my schedule. And I think something started to come alive in me with which I had lost connection a very long time ago. So I think I lost myself in, you know, I think really early on after the immigration, you know, the little girl was just so afraid that she hid so deeply within me. And then who I became then was sort of a persona that was created out of a need to survive, sort of learning what's the new environment like, here are the rules, here's how I play the game. And so then I lost myself in the becoming, right? Like this, who, how I'm, these are the rules, this is how I'm going to play the game and I'm going to crush it. And I did. So yay, great, except there was a huge disconnection from who I was deep within and coming out of the American, you know, game and being plopped in France started to remind me of my roots a little bit, started to remind me, oh, beauty is important to me, started to remind me, oh, now that I'm surrounded by foreigners, like, who do I copy? Who do I, I was like a chameleon, right? How do I win this game when everyone's so different? And so I really started to come to a place where I started asking myself, my God, if I'm not a wife to my husband or mother to my children or COO of my company, then who am I? And and I didn't know. And, you know, at first it was like, well, that's a weird question to be asking. But there was something that started calling me from deep, deep within. And, you know, when I, the longer I ignored those kinds of questions, like, what am I even doing here? You know, why doesn't everything feel so amazing? Because from the outside, looking 
from the outside, it's the perfect life and it's everything I ever wanted, but I need it. And so I started to have panic attack and anxiety and a lot of health issues. And I think it's because I was trying to repress those questions and something wanted to come up to the surface to sort of be explored. And I was just afraid where it would lead me like, wait, I just built everything just so, and it's great. Like, why are we messing with this? And I just, life really gave me no choice, but to dive in there. And I did. And so those questions sent me on a decade long healing journey, self-discovery journey, a spiritual journey, which then really led me to start writing. I really wanted to remind women in particular that there's more to life than chasing the thing and sort of just bring us all back to our hearts. And, you know, how am I feeling about this? How does all of this feel inside? Forget how it looks on the outside. How does it feel on the inside? Because I forgot to ask myself that along the way. Yeah. And it was like that little girl who didn't feel safe and had felt like she had to be responsible and that she had to be successful and that she had to do everything right because everything around her was so hard. Like she finally kind of felt safe enough to ask for help from you, like be taken care of when you got to that place of having a little bit of space and time to yourself and distance and room to breathe, really. Yeah, I think it was the first time that I could hear her, you know? I think she was probably in there screaming for that help for a long time, but I was just so busy chasing and achieving and proving that I too was worthy as a foreigner that there was no space to hear her. And you're right, that's exactly what happened. And, you know, interestingly enough, you know, now 10 years later, I'm finally at a place where instead of, like you said, doing everything I should, uh, you know, to survive and like, I just, there were so many things I had to do. I'm just getting to a place where I'm starting to let her play, you know, so there's a lot more, there's a lot more time for play and sort of sporadic joy. I mean, it, it existed before. It's just a little bit different. It's unstructured and it's not through, you know, it used to be just through my children mostly. And now it's letting that little girl in me play how she wants to play. And then what a playground, right? To get to do that in Paris. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So when you started having these panic attacks, and this is like sort of how your book starts out is that you're on vacation and you get taken to the hospital and you get diagnosed with a heart condition. And then what was your first clue that the heart condition was spiritual and emotional rather than purely physical? And what were the, what were some of the first things that, because I don't know how much, you don't really get into whether or not you were doing a lot of this work and emotional, you know, kind of stuff before you began your healing journey. So Uh, how did you switch gears from like the very, you know, running a huge company and the very material focused entrepreneur to deciding to look within for finding clues to heal? Uh, that's a good question. It, so I had done nothing before. I had never been to a single therapy session. I, you know, the only form of, I didn't do any form of self-care. I did not really enjoy going to massage. I tried yoga once or twice, could not get my mind to stop thinking about my meetings and my calendar. The only form of like physical exercise was like jogging on my treadmill before I left for work, getting up before getting the kids off to school to kind of check that box. So it really life gave me no choice. So when I first had that panic attack from the opening scene, and then we flew back from the Caribbean to France, it started with a lot of medical visits, right? So like they said, and I I have 
family heart history. And so I think it was an easy diagnosis. And then I got put on a really strong heart medicine. And then they gave me something for anxiety. And then they gave me something for panic attacks. So there was a lot of medicine at first, but I felt like it was only like keeping it down. Right. So to me, I just was curious, you know, I, so for the medicine helped me to stabilize because initially the panic attacks were daily and there was so much fear. And so I was such a basket case, which was that I think was the scariest part. I had been someone, I had been someone so brave and so strong. And so, I mean, I'd done so much and tackled such massive things. I couldn't understand why I was experiencing so much fear. It just didn't make any sense. So even though the medicine kind of helped, you know, and they came less frequently and I can kind of get my footing, I just really needed to know. And I couldn't, had I been able to get back to functioning a hundred percent, like I had been before the panic attack, maybe I would have just left it, but I wasn't, I just was feeling off. It just, it was would be weird physical sensations and, you know, like these waves of sadness and tears. So like the way that I had functioned in the world up until that point just can't just ended. I couldn't. And so I needed to find some new way of being. And I learned that I really, I really knew so little about what it means to be human, you know, like, like how the body functions and like, what is this and what is going on? What is all this fear? And so I started to go to therapy and I, and I write about, you know, my first sessions where I just would drive and take several trains to get to the suburbs to see an English speaking therapist. And I just would cry for the whole entire hour. And I just, I didn't know what was going on. And so it was there that we started to look at what was your childhood like? It was great. I mean, I have great parents were very close. And my therapist was just, she just saw that my body was saying something else than what I was speaking. And, you know, looking back, I can see how tense I was, how shallow and fast my breathing. So she knew the signs. And so she gently started me down that path. And then she said, let's try some breathing exercises. So I started to see how much tension and stress was in my body. And I just got curious about it. And I started to do, to take yoga classes. And that was really, that was a big, big doorway because that just taught me so much about, you know, how much trauma is stored in our bodies and how we walk around completely unaware. But if you slow, that's why it's so hard to be still or to meditate because, you know, the mind is racing and that oftentimes when we slow down things start coming up and we get afraid and so we just start keep running not to address what's in there and and so that's how it started and it really was like learning a brand new language but I just wanted to know how someone who was so strong and and so tough could be such a wreck you know just couldn't it didn't make any sense and so I just wanted to investigate and so that's how it started and then I just read everything and listened to everyone and sort of like made my way through all kinds of stuff to yeah, learn. Yeah, you know, I've done a lot of the stuff that you've mentioned. I've been on a similar path, let's say, and but not all of it. You like you really, I think, did the full spectrum of things that there are to to do and to work on to for some of these healing methods. But what was what would you say was one of the first books that you read, like that kind of brought you from the therapy and the curiosity and the self exploration to the sort of more spiritual, like energetic types of healing? The first one, it's when I started to learn about trauma, really. And so the body keeps the scores that, you know, the trauma, body, that was a big one. And so that's when I started to learn that we store emotions in our, in our cells, basically. And that by sitting in certain postures and doing certain breath work, we can release it. And so that brought me into sort of like the work of the energy, you know, the, a lot of the trauma is stuck energy in our body. And so I became fascinated with that. And then after that, Carolyn 
Thomas has a book called The Anatomy of the Spirit. And that really talks about the, you know, the energetic fields and our chakras and sort of how, how energy flows through our system and our body and how it gets stuck and how to release it. And I learned that, you know, a lot of my work up until that moment was very much talk therapy. So talk, talk, talk. But I, I started to see that I, I, these patterns that I was stuck in. And then I started to really think that, oh, there's somatic healing that has to happen. So on a body level, because a lot of what I was stuck in was actually, you know, it was energy that was stuck in my body and talking about it wasn't going to release it. I needed to move the body and move the energy. And so Anatomy of Beer, was a great book that talks about all that. And then she, a Christian mystic. So she really took, transitioned me into then, oh my gosh, this is spiritual too. And so I started to really shift from healing purely. I still at that time wanted to arrive at that space of I'm healed, I'm fixed. Now I'm, now I'm good, right? Now I'm done. And she really pointed me towards the Christian mystics who just talk about, you know, it really is the peeling the layers and we're, we're just the energy that we're releasing, the trauma that we're releasing, the past stories that we're releasing is really sort of like cleaning a mirror. So you're sort of looking at life through one lens. And as you release the stuff, you're cleaning that lens so that you can see yourself in the world more clearly. And then you see the sacredness in all of it. And so then I started to see that really is a forever ongoing process of releasing everything that blocks you from seeing how the world really is. And that is that we are all sacred and we're surrounded by sacredness all the time. And I just wanted to live out of that space of being loved everywhere I went, seeing love in everyone and I encountered and not being blinded by something painful that happened to me 20 years ago or yesterday, or that this girl was a jerk at the, you know, checkout counter. Like I wanted to sort of be so open hearted and so clean that I can just live every day and let life move through me without getting stuck into like, oh, that didn't go right. Or she was rude or whatever. We get tripped up on these little things. And so I guess that's how it worked for me, if that makes any sense. <laughs> it does to me. Okay, um, yeah, no, I mean, that's a, that's a thing that comes up quite often is the idea of like lifting the veil and peeling back the layers. And one of the yeah. things that I thought you did really well in your book, like I, this is a very hard genre, I think, to describe that internal journey in a way that can make sense to people who didn't live it. And I think one of the things that you did extremely well in your writing was sort of showing how all of those layers, the protective layers got built up and, and the things that, you know, affected you and caused you to build up those defenses and want to protect that little girl. And then how you slowly began to peel them all back through all of the different kinds of work that you did. And it was, it was really so beautiful how you described that. And Thank you. It, war it, it, it warms my heart to hear you say that because that's my intention with the book. You know, people are like, why right. are you writing about the most difficult points in your life, like the most painful? And it's because I w really wanted to use my life as an example. Like we have, we go through suffering and it's yeah. in those times we develop ways to cope. We all do this and mm -hmm. here are mine. So I really wanted the reader to see the little girl and I, she was free and playful at birth, right? But she got raised in a place that wasn't safe. And so I wanted to show people by using my own life as an example, like here are my layers, which then became my personality. But in order to be free, you know, they work for a while, right? Because they ensured my survival and they ensure your survival. But you get to a certain point, and that's what happened in Paris, that all of those ways that I had functioned were like this protective armor that I had been wearing, and it just got so heavy that it cracked. And so yeah. knowing that, can I choose to remove it? And that feels very scary because you're exposed and you're vulnerable. And so you have to find a new way of being 
being in the world, but that's the way to freedom, right? Like through those most painful experiences and letting all that go and then really becoming who we are meant to be, you know, which is our true self and then our own individual expression of the divine without the protective mechanisms, which were beautiful and needed, but can be released if we want to expand and grow and mature and become more, you know, I think we stop growing. Yeah. Yeah. And we, I mean, we do need those protective layers. We do need to keep ourselves safe when, you know, especially when you're an adolescent and you're in a new place and you don't speak the language and you don't have friends and you want to fit in and you need all of that. And then at some point, yeah, we need to take it off. And yeah. And that's a hard thing to do if everything's working, you know, like it's, so I needed to have that horrible episode to do something else. Otherwise I would have just continued living that way. So, you know, and you know, we're taught to avoid pain. And so it's natural not to want to look at your trauma and not to want to talk about maybe some coping skills that aren't so healthy because that's what you know, that they feel safe, they feel comfortable because they're familiar. But uh, yeah, freedom is on the other side of just looking at that behavior or that fear in the face and sitting with it. And yeah, it's a hard, but it's a beautiful process. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's really important for people to have good examples like that of somebody showing how they got started and showing how they did the work and showing because you don't, you don't see that internal journey that people go on. And it's not something that we have the habit of talking about. I mean, I love having these conversations with people, but you know, people want to protect even with their friendships, like want to protect their hearts and, you know, not share too much about, about some of these painful experiences. And so having those examples of someone who is willing to show from the lowest dark night of the soul point in her life and how she rebuilt from there is really powerful. And Thank you. I wanted to normalize those conversations, but I think you're right. We, you know, first of all, we're just so programmed to put on the best face and how are you? I'm fine. And we're just so programmed to keep everything together and, you know, like show up and cleaned up that it's almost like, you know, you don't want to get too upset. We always apologize when we cry and, you know, it's just so in us. And yeah, I really, and I wanted to write the book I didn't have when everything broke for me. I wanted like you said, like, how do you get started? Like, this is how you get started. And when you were like, I don't know what I'm doing and it's messy. Surely I'm not doing the right thing. You're doing the right thing. So I really wanted to support the women and the men who like everything, the bottom's falling out and they're like, oh my gosh, now what? Read this because I just wanted to be that guide on the journey that I wish I had, but now I wrote it for others. And so then, you know, the whole journey became my purpose. Oh, here's the suffering, but here's the wisdom, right? It's like the golden elixir. I bring from my hero's journey to then share with others who may be just getting started on that path themselves. So, I mean, it, was, it took me three years to write it. It was hard, but I'm really proud of it because I think it could help heal hearts and it could help people feel less alone in a journey that is all very often extremely isolating because no one has the language. Not many people have the language. And so we don't talk about it. Right, right. Well, one of the things, I mean, you mentioned this in your sort of, at one point you list out all of the different things that you did in the process of healing. And it was so interesting because I've had so many of the same experiences of like, you know, life coaches who aren't really qualified who do some kind of like weird healing thing that they invented or somebody did it to them once. And so then they feel qualified to, you know, do it to somebody else. Yeah, (laughs) Been there, done that, have that teacher. (laughs) And I know at one point, like for me, it was really easy to get 
stuck in the feeling like, you know, there's the next thing that has to be fixed, you know, like you get into a little bit of a, not like an addiction to continuing to do the work, but like, it feels kind of like your job and like, okay, like there's this thing that's still wrong with me that I don't like, how am I going, you know, is that the next thing that I have to, you know, tweak in some way? So I think, you know, what can be really helpful to people too, is like understanding how to balance and integrate some of the work they do and then taking a break and resting and then moving forward with the next thing and not just feeling like they're a constant self-improvement project that is never finished. Yeah, for sure. And I think at the beginning, I was just using the only way I know how to work, which is dive right in there and, you know, like study too hard, do too much, do all the things. I was still, I was efforting my own healing, just like I efforted not being a foreigner or being a successful entrepreneur or doing all the things. I was still thriving and achieving, even in healing. Mm -hmm. So that was was a big lesson too like slow down you know slow down and it's a slow process and it's gentle and it really is I really understand what you say when you talk about getting to the point where like oh no I gotta fix this and now I got oh I'm still being judgmental I gotta really work on that and it's actually a lot softer but more difficult it's accepting all those traits about yourself you know so it really becomes not about fixing in terms of healing but I really think now it's about wholeness right So recognizing all that and seeing that at one point it was necessary, it all gets developed out of some something that overwhelmed us, but not judging it and wishing that we could get rid of it. But, you know, listening to the message that it has, like, why am I? What's that from? How did that protect me at one point? And accepting that part. And, you know, it's it's about integrating all of those parts of ourselves and even the ones that, you know, where we don't love and learning to love them. And, you know, coming to the point to be like, that actually there's nothing wrong with me. It's just sometimes I tell myself stories that there are all these problems, but it's really... Yeah, just, you know, it's so cliche, but it really comes down to love, right? And how much can you love yourself despite all the quote unquote imperfections? Yeah, that's been my latest journey is really focusing on cultivating love for myself, which I didn't realize was so hard. I always thought I loved well, and I did. I loved others very well. I just didn't really know how to love myself. Yeah. And I mean, part of it too is acknowledging that, you know, sometimes we do things like we snap at people or procrastinate or whatever you know, past judgment without knowing the situation because we're telling ourselves stories and because we still have feeling left to do. And sometimes we just do it because we're human. And yes, you know, that's <laughs> like part of the human experience. So totally. kind of like these questions about like, is this something that I really have to heal? Or am I being a perfectionist in my healing journey? And like, exactly, you know, really, I can just cut myself some slack on sometimes I say snarky things about people because you know, yeah, yeah. Welcome to the human experience. Right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, your results may vary. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's the journey. Yeah, yeah. Um, So I do want to bring it back to to Paris and your life in Paris a little bit. What were some of the things like as you were going on this internet? healing journey. And I think at, part, at one point, like you went back to Florida for a little bit. And so you weren't necessarily in Paris that whole time. But what were some of the ways that, you know, you may have been experiencing Paris or like the experience of being an American Polish woman in Paris? How was that? How were you experiencing that as you were doing all of this healing? It was really was the it was really important because it would have been so easy. And again, it was important because I knew I wasn't really Polish. I wasn't really American. 
American and I wasn't French. And so it allowed to, it would be so easy if I was, if we, you know, if I stayed, if I was back in Poland and I felt so connected to my Polish roots or, but it just kept it, the background for me vague enough not to cling onto something and over identify with it. Right. So if like, if I just started deciding I'm going to become super French and I'm just going to learn the language and I'm just going to embrace the Frenchness thing and become the perfect French woman, I wouldn't have gone on this deep journey. But the fact that no skin that I tried to put on felt comfortable for me, there was, I just, it was a constant reminder of this discomfort of like, I don't really belong with the French. I really don't belong with the Americans. I don't belong with the Poles. So like, it just kept that question of who am I? Who am I? Who am I constantly in my background? And then appreciating, this was the other thing. And and for a while in the United States, we lived in Bucks County in, in, in Pennsylvania, where there were a lot of people with a very similar life journey, not a lot of foreigners. And so there it was easy to be like, oh yeah, this is who I become. I do that. But being in Paris and being in such a diverse environment, I really was able to see not just wow, everyone's different, but see how beautiful then that made the community. And so, you know, I started to show up for like one year, The one of the kids' schools had an international picnic and you come with the culture and the food and I showed up at the Polish table and my parents were like shocked and they were like, why? are you doing the post? And I'm like, I don't know. I just felt like it. And so it just, that for me was really important because I couldn't just grab the next easy thing and go with that and put that on as, oh, this is who I'm going to become next. It really kept me into, I need to keep searching and seeking this because I could not find that comfort. And, you know, then we did move to the States for high school for my son and COVID hit. And those were really formative years because I had been reading and seeking and searching and learning for so long that having those two years of like being a hermit, it somehow started to like come into place for me. And I started to make sense of it. And that's when I started writing. And so I really Mm -hmm. began processing and verbalizing everything I had learned. Yeah. Yeah. I do, looking back, feel really fortunate that I had done a lot of this stuff before COVID hit because it would have been, it was, COVID was very difficult for a lot of people, but I was already coming out of that part of my life, not totally, but you know, and I think it would have been very, very challenging to be in that dark and difficult place while under lockdown. Yeah, yeah, you laid the groundwork for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I really I mean, I feel like the timing was (laughs) impeccable. (laughs) As it always Uh, is. (laughs) As it always is. I mean, Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Sometimes we just can't see it. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's one of the things that you don't really fully understand until you're looking backwards and you're like, oh, that's why it has to happen. Mm -hmm. That's why it had to happen that way. Even if, you know, I mean, I refuse to say things like, you know, everything happens for a reason and blah, blah, blah. I think it's the worst thing you could possibly say to somebody who's going through something extremely difficult. But like looking back at how things unfolded, there were certain things like it just, that's the way it had to go. Yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. It is the worst thing to say to others. But I think if we ourselves can look at our own challenges after some time and to dig in there for for a lesson or maybe some wisdom that we can gain from a difficult experience, I think we could learn a lot, you know? Yeah. 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 But I mean, we have to be willing to be curious, like you said, about, yeah. you know, what did these experiences teach us and how did we how did we adopt these identities and build up yeah. these layers that are not who we really are? Yeah. And, you know, so much of it is the 
learning to be in the discomfort. Like we just get so comfortable with the way things are and living on autopilot. And the minute you start sort of undoing a pattern or a behavior, it gets so uncomfortable. It was physically uncomfortable for me that really what you want to do is just go yeah. right back, right? Yeah. And it's like, so the extent of which that you're willing to be uncomfortable is really the extent of how, how massive your shift or the change in your life can be. But we're not taught how to sit with discomfort, right? We just want to numb it. Or uh, fix it Exactly. Exactly. So, and you know, that's new. So telling people, actually, you want to be uncomfortable. They look at you like you're crazy. Right. Um, You want to be uncomfortable and then you want to keep making it worse for, you know, several months, if not years to uncover all of the uncomfortable things and then kind of like put them back together. It's not very popular (laughs) advice. Yeah. Yeah. No, people don't, people don't take that well. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So the book is for those who, you know, are wanting to, it's not for everyone, you know, and that was my big thing. Like there's not for everyone and I'm not for everyone. I mean, I don't meet everyone I like. Why should everyone like me? The book is for those who are ready and I fully trust that it will fall in the right hands. And and I hope, I just hope, I just hope that as many people read it as possible because I think it, I think it has a message of message of its own. And I just try to do that justice, you know, and sort of to, to communicate it by putting my own spin on it. Yeah. With my own yeah, words. Yeah. Well, like I said, I mean, I think it was really beautifully done and I think, you know, it really shows that, you know, some of the things that we build up in ourselves that we need to heal from are, you know, like coping mechanisms for difficult things that we've experienced. But then some of them are just like, I don't even know, like how to say it. They're just, you know, parts of our personality that are not wrong. They're just not who we really are. Right. I mean, it's habit. So much of what we do yeah. is just out of habit because our mom did it this way or her mom did it that way. And then we just sort of, that's what we watched when we were little and we adapted it. Right. But, you know, it always starts with how well is that serving me now? because there's nothing wrong with changing everything really I mean you can change everything but there's nothing wrong with being like super that worked well up until now and now I'm just going to change it up because let's just see what happens you know and and that's another thing I think too like playfulness can come in it doesn't have to be I think for a long time I was like head down and super or serious about this healing you know but like yeah. curiosity and play and adventure and I, and I had to write because fear was such a big part of anything unknown anything out of the ordinary right. that old fear fear from when I was a very little girl would come back and I couldn't handle it. And so now I'm like, what if this isn't fear? What if it's excitement, you know? And so just choosing to look at it differently. One of my people that I've worked with, I don't remember if it was a coach or a healer or somebody said fear is excitement without the breath. Yeah, and I really love true. that because mm-hmm. once you start to recognize, and I think like when we get into this healing stuff, we, there's a point at which I thought I'm never going to come out the other side. It's just always oh, going yeah. to be like this and yes. it's always going to be hard and mm-hmm. I'm doing the work and it's never going to, it's never going to click. And I'm just going to be stuck like this and spinning my wheels and not able to be the person that I really want to be. I used to say the same thing. Yeah. And then at some point, and I don't know when the shift happened exactly. I couldn't, as of right now, I couldn't go back and identify, you know, a time at which I suddenly started to feel like things started moving in the right direction for me. But part of it, I think was starting to breathe into it a little bit more and like, what if it doesn't go this terrible way? <laughs> what if it, things work out? What if, you know, what if I'm excited about this thing instead of nervous about it? Yeah, yeah, and, it's yeah just and being able to shift that curiosity. Yeah, absolutely. You know? I mean, I remember that point where I just was like, I'm never going to be okay. I will never, this is yeah. never going to end. I'm too, and you know, because what I was diagnosed with CPTSD, which is chronic PTSD. And so it's it started while I was very young. And I was just like, oh my God, there must be no coming back. There must be no coming back out of that. There's no undoing it, you know? Right. 
And so, you know, I was stuck there for a little bit too. And then just as you said, it completely shifted. I mean, I think it's because I kept going, even when I thought I couldn't, even when I was like, this totally sucks. And I can't believe I get to live another day in this like horrible way of feeling. But you just put one foot in front of the other. And, you know, eventually it shifts, it passes, it really. And now I know that it can happen quicker because now, you know, that belief where it's always going to have to be hard for me, I decided that it was a crippling for me. And so I just changed, can I change that sentence? Can I just choose to believe my life can be beautiful and easy? And at first I didn't believe it, but you know, like the mind is incredible. And now I'm like, that's just a new truth I've adopted because it serves me better. Yeah. Yeah. And, And coming out of it, coming out to the other side where, you know, I feel good and I'm happy to wake up in the morning and I feel like I've come back from a lot of that stuff. And it just makes me feel like, okay, there might be more hard things coming to me in my life in the future, but now I know how to get through them in a different way. I have now you have the tools. Yeah. 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 And that's so reassuring to think that the next hard thing is surmountable, I guess. Yeah. I mean, you can't get out of suffering. That's part of the human experience, right? But it's right. sort of like the roller coaster ride doesn't have to be so dramatic and exhausting. You know, it's like now, now I have something to anchor to within so that, you know, yeah. and the highs aren't so high, but the lows aren't so low either. So it's just, I try to stay more grounded and peaceful and calm within inside regardless of the external circumstances and I think it's just sort of learning to flow with life you know and then trusting that we're held by something great and you know sacred and mystical and magical that's sort of orchestrating the whole thing yeah that's really beautiful last question do you have any advice for somebody who I guess one might be thinking about moving to France or Paris and then two is now looking forward to embarking on some of this healing work my dog where am I have to let me get her out of the room and then you can ask me okay sure come here go Okay, you said final question. Do you want to ask it again? Sure. Hold on. Let me think of it again. It was. Uh, do you have any advice do you, for someone? Do you have any advice for somebody? Yeah. yeah. Do you have any advice for somebody who might be thinking of moving to France? and or simultaneously embarking on some of this healing work? Well, first I will say, do it, you know, go for it. You get one life. Oftentimes, in order to make the biggest and most significant shift and transformations in our life, we have to be taken out of our comfort zone. So, you know, being planted in Paris might just be the biggest gift that life can offer someone who's looking for something different. Living in France is amazing. Advice for someone who's coming here, definitely get plugged into the international community easily done through the American church or you know schools or even the American library with social media now it's so much easier than 10 years ago when we did it but there are already people here who have done this before and so they can hold your hand through it and uh, you know we kind of become this this family it's a beautiful community and uh, yeah for doing the inner work I mean don't be afraid of it whatever it is that you're running from or fearing it holds the answers and it holds the you know the way to your freedom. And so instead of escaping it, face it, it doesn't have to be a battle or a major war. It probably is just something that needs love and tender hope. And I would say, of course, by my book, because that's why I wrote it. And yeah, to not be afraid of opening Pandora's box, because it's not that the tears will never end and the pain will never stop. They just need to be acknowledged and released. And and then it's just a lot easier and lighter to live in the present moment and to be here. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. That was really so beautiful. Thank you. It was a really beautiful conversation. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Profiles and Transformation with Allison Grant-Luness. If you liked this episode, please like, subscribe, and share on social media. I'll see you next time for a new episode. And in the meantime, I hope we've inspired you today to pursue your dreams, no matter how big or small. Remember, the way you bring your own dreams into reality is by believing in yourself and taking small steps towards your goal. Start today, start now, and a bientôt.